Welcome to Orders Beyond Borders, an audio interview series as part of the Berlin Social Science Center, BCB's blog. In this series, we bring you new insights from leading scholars and emerging researchers in the field of international relations and global politics. This is a project run by the International Politics and Law Department of the Berlin Social Science Center, and it's run by the unit's Global Governance, Governance for Global Health, and Global Humanitarian Medicine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast episode with Nicholas Harrington. Nicholas Harrington is a visiting PhD candidate from the University of Sydney, Australia. Nicholas is currently completing a dissertation comparing the philosophical foundations of Thomas Hobbes and Niels Bohr, with the ultimate purpose of developing a concept of the political based upon Bohr's theory of complementarity. He's also a research assistant with Project Q, an initiative of the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Sydney, which investigates what a quantum future will look like when computers, communication systems, and artificial intelligence are all enabled by quantum technology. Nicholas's research concerns epistemology, ideational development, the history, philosophy, and sociology of science, and the rational development of political systems. Thank you, Nicholas, for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so, um, what brings you to the VCB? Well, I uh, am being supervised in my dissertation by Professor John Keane, and Professor Keane is a, a research professor here at the um, at the WZB, actually. And so, uh, he sort of pointed me to the opportunity of doing a research exchange some time ago, and said, obviously, there are huge advantages to coming to you know such an internationally recognised institution. Uh, the benefits of obviously that academic environment and so on. So really, I think that the idea came from uh, my supervisor and then I pursued it at the beginning of this year uh, to try to sort of organise an exchange formally between the University of Sydney and the WZB. And there is, I think, a pretty decent history of this uh, cross-pollination between our two institutions. But then, as I'm sure is no surprise to anybody, when COVID pandemic became a real onset reality, all of those plans were completely abandoned. And so there was no exchange between our two institutions at all. Uh, despite that, I still tried to see whether it was possible uh, to come and make a visitation. And so it was still made possible, but I must say that that's all because of the gracious uh, extent, you know, hand that was extended by the WZB. And it's great to have you here. I've read a lot of your work already but maybe you could give a overview of what you're working on currently. So I suppose um, uh, in the very simple terms, what I'm doing is trying to do a really deep dive into Thomas Hobbes, look at his writings, the way that he came to his concept of the political in a fresh and original way, looking at some material which hasn't been given a great deal of treatment in the past. I'm doing a similar thing with Niels Bohr, the quantum physicist, um, and in this respect, Niels Bohr hasn't really received a great deal of treatment from a political, philosophical, a political philosophical point of view at all. I mean, and that's not surprising considering he was a quantum physicist rather than a philosopher in terms of how he's understood. And then making a comparison between these two authors that I think hasn't been done before. I mean, in fact, I know that it hasn't been done in this explicit way. And... I think the connection between the two is that certainly in my undergrad it was made quite clear to me that Thomas Hobbes 
was a natural philosopher and that Thomas Hobbes was informed in his political philosophy very much by his physics. And so there was this obvious kind of question that I had, well, if the political philosophy of Thomas Hobbes is driven by his understanding of nature and understanding of natural philosophy and understanding of physics, then what becomes of our concept of the political if we have this supposed revolution in understanding of physics, nature and natural philosophy that's brought on by the quantum revolution of the early 20th century. So that's kind of the thing. So stage one, look at Hobbes. Stage two, look at Bohr. And then in the third section, see well, what, what is the synthesis that comes out of those two uh, contrasts. Okay, that sounds really interesting. Um, you speak of social paradoxes. Maybe you can um, explain a bit more about them and maybe how they compare to the science political paradox. Okay, okay. So, yes, that's a great question. So, Niels Bohr, his most famous theory is this theory of complementarity and a very shorthand way of explaining uh, the motivation behind complementarity for Niels Bohr is it was a way of resolving these apparent physical paradoxes that emerged in the quantum physicists' examination and exploration of the physical reality that they were dealing with at the subatomic level. So in my sort of reading, it's quite clear that the way of resolving these physical paradoxes is a question of epistemology, how these pictures of reality are looked at and considered from a, a knowledge perspective rather than trying to say that one picture of reality is correct and the other not correct. So we have from Bohr then a, an epistemological proposition, which is complementarity, and it seemed then, I mean, and he suggested himself, that this was not meant to be a, a theory just nested within physics. He wanted it or suggested that it had application across all sorts of different social sciences. He makes that explicit. So I thought, okay, well, I'll take that seriously then. What are the philosophical and political philosophical ramifications of taking complementarity across. And so I thought, well, the easiest thing to do is if he's dealing with physical paradoxes, then, you know, what's a social paradox? What's a political paradox? And he says that a physical paradox are two pictures of reality that are incommensurable and incompatible. So there's this obvious underlying tension where one description of a phenomenon uh, doesn't match the opposing description of the same phenomenon so then I tried to find um, analogies to this in politics. And it seems that you're immediately drawn to questions of uh, polarization, political tension, political conflict, where one description of an event doesn't match the other description and we can't get past this uh, blockage in the way that things are understood. And as you look across the political landscape, um, there are lots of these paradoxes where, I mean, think in a democracy we tend to have partisanship embracing one picture of something and then the other side of the party uh, embracing the other side of the, um, of, the, of the question. I mean we have this all along, all along the way. The idea is that this mode of thinking, this complementary mode of thinking enables you hopefully, and this is the, the object of my dissertation, is to find your way past these blockages, not to privilege one description or the other to say, look, this side of that social paradox is the correct side and the other side is the incorrect side or anything like that, but more to say, can we move beyond what looks like an impasse, a descriptive impasse, to some sort of pragmatic compromise position perhaps, some, some position ideationally and then practically politically where both sides can have some form of win 
and can feel as though there is a uh, you know a position that they can both agree to I think to move forward so that that's kind of the idea is you know th on the one sense from a practical political point of view complementarity is meant to be a pathway towards pragmatic politics so that solutions can be advanced that uh, can accommodate both of these sort of previously conflictual pictures and that people can um, or that you know that society can move forward and so we're not entrenched in these sort of bitter divides and, and wedges and so on. So well from what I understand it's a purely epistemological framework that is supposed to aid um, sort of understanding the clash of different positions. How do you think that when applied to, yeah, as you said, uh, pragmatic politics, um, how do you think different positions, people holding different positions, could or would come to a compromise? Mm. So it's, I mean, that's a great question because I'm not sure who's meant to use complementarity, actually. So is it meant to be used by one of either of the sides? Are you meant to sort of step in and say, whoa, whoa, you guys are having this argument here, use complementarity instead? I don't think that's likely. I feel in a way, I mean, this is an odd thing to suggest, but I feel like it's it's a tool for leadership or a tool for, for statespeople in a way. It's a tool for someone sort of observing the situation from the outside is able to then propose a uh, sort of an alternative position. It seems to me that's it has to kind of work that way because it's unlikely that somebody who is so uh, um, invested in their position is somehow going to relinquish it for this uh, other alternative. So I, I haven't resolved yet how that actually might be possible. But it seems that, um, I mean, for example, uh, you know, people who are working in a commentary field, you know, the media could certainly be employing this means of... of observing these dynamics between two political sides and then offering this sort of, you know, compromise perspective potentially to resolve this impasse rather than obviously what we see at the moment, which is quite often, you know, partisan media will just fuel these one side of the paradox or the other rather than actually uh, looking to see if it can be moved beyond. So I think, I mean, ideally I would imagine, you know, that you have, I mean, it, it seems to me that anybody in a leadership position, you know, whether it's, Merkel's cabinet or Boris Johnson's uh, administration that they could look at this uh, situation which is causing you know a great deal of friction and a great deal of tension and opinion polls and so on can measure the degree to which there is a, um, an, a sort of a non-salience and a salience on a particular issue with different interest groups and then propose uh, you know an alternative uh, sort of vision for addressing this and then a policy prescription that matches. And so, for example, I mean, we've seen that how Brexit is understood. I mean, this is a, this is completely and absolutely incommensurable uh, understandings of what took place, um, you know, in June, July of 2016. And so, obviously, we have the opportunity then of perhaps reinterpreting what took place. So it's, you know, not, not sort of mired in this question of, openness versus closeness, nationalism versus internationalism, these kind of binaries that are relatively unhelpful because the people, I mean, oftentimes the way that those groups who are ascribed with those appellations are quite offended with having that description applied to them and then that's completely unproductive. Uh, so in a sense, it's, it would be useful to deal with a situation exactly like that. And so then it would be an opportunity for someone like uh, you know, a leader like a Boris Johnson or a Theresa May in the past 
to use a different frame to then move beyond this sort of entrenched paradoxical description of reality that you know they're currently faced with something i found really uh, interesting when we had the conversation last time was that um when you talked about how the observer and quantum mechanics um, makes a change to the thing being observed. Hence, when you talk about um, a leader or position, uh, someone in power employing this, um, yeah, this theory or this framework, does that mean that yeah, they are impacting the situation as well? Is that the same parallel that is being created there? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there's no way that you can escape that reality. They are, you know, anybody who is an actor or an observer, certainly within politics, is having a, um, a con you know, a constitutive effect on what is happening. So part of what the complementarity framework is meant to make you appreciate is the way in which these two opposing pictures have been constructed by the tools that are using to understand and examine them themselves, definitely. And also, just on the question that you asked about, is it meant to have a practical political application, I kind of always felt that that is an obligation of anything within social sciences and like political science in general, that you really do want to sort of ask the question, how can this be used, you know, how can this be used practically? How can this have a, an outcome for society for its sort of, you know, betterment or you know, greater enfranchisement, liberation, whatever you might say. If it's if if it's really just theory for theory's sake and a little bit of navel gazing, then I think that seems somehow less worthwhile. So the idea of trying to project whatever I was working on in the dissertation to a you know a possible practical a application was always definitely important. Speaking of practical application, do you think research in political philosophy is much different than, let's say, research in IR? Because you wrote your honors dissertation in IR, so mm. wanted to know, as a young researcher, or like I'm also quite interested in IR and also philosophy, but often it happens that I can't make the worlds meet because the 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 technicalities or the jargon in one one mm. discipline despite it being in the social sciences is so different the premise is completely different mm. hence do you find like how do you navigate yourself in this kind of field in mm. political philosophy specifically yeah i mean that's really interesting i suppose it depends on like what the actual nature of the work that you're undertaking so for my dissertation for honours, which was, as you say, was about the, uh, the European Union, so it was an institutional analysis, definitely dealt with um, supranational institutions, so it had an international relations element, uh, you know, the agreement between member states and so on. But the way that I undertook the research was still sort of like, it, not that dissimilar to what I'm doing now, because it was still an, an, like an excavation of ideational formation, how ideas are made, how things come about. And so it was, in a sense, a historical study of primary research from that very early period, the Schumann plan, where those quote-unquote founding members or founding individuals who designed those institutions of the European coal and steel community, how they chose to design those institutions, what were the ideas that backgrounded their institutional design. And my general gut feeling was that those ideas were somehow embedded in the institutional design and carried forward. So today the EU that we have, we're still living in a resonance of the mentality of those institutional designers back in the 19, late 40s, early 50s. 
And so that was the essential kind of the, the premise there. So although, yes, it was IR, yes, it was dealing with institutions, it was still dealing with ideas and philosophy and how institutions are embedded with ideas and this sort of thing. So it w in a way, it was a historical institutionalist analysis, and I know obviously that this department here in the WZB deals a lot with that sort of study. Uh, it also had an implicit backgrounding in sort of path dependency. But at the end of the day, it's not that different to what I'm doing now. I'm still doing a lot of primary research. I'm saying, how were Thomas Hobbes's ideas made? How were Niels Bohr's ideas made under his uh, own conditions or their own respective conditions? So then I suppose the question is, how do you then leap this into something practical? I, I, think, it's, I think it's just constantly trying... Well, in a way, it's just believing that mm, times aren't really any different. So the way that they're... So the time of Thomas Hobbes is pretty much exactly the same as now, at least in my opinion. It's just like a change of costume or a change <laughs> of technology. But it's exactly the same. I mean, he's dealing with the same tensions at that time, just different names applied and so on. So I, I don't find it necessarily uh, a challenge to see how uh, looking at Hobbes's philosophy could be employed to help us today or the difference between IR... It's, we're still dealing with ideas. And I think so that's the thing, to answer the question sort of in a very roundabout way, is that my studies are about ideas and how ideas are made. It was the same with the IR study as it is now with the dissertation on political philosophy. So it's really, I mean, I guess you could probably the best way to say is that I jammed my IR dissertation into political philosophy, really, and I'm doing <laughs> it again with my <laughs> PhD. So, that's brilliant. So I think that's kind of what I did, really. So you're quite conceptually inclined uh, in your work. Uh, look, I, I think we live in a world of ideas, and ideas and beliefs, and that's it. And, you know, the, the reality of society is the reality that people have uh, accepted. And the ideas that they've accepted, I mean, this is nothing new. These are pretty standard kind of ideas. That's pretty uh, parochial stuff. And I think now we find ourselves in a tricky situation because those ideas are very much contested, and they're contested broadly. So it's in the past, I suppose, you could imagine that there was a massive accepted reality, and then at the margins there were people who were a little bit sceptical about this and trying to advance alternative propositions. But now we seem to experience real cleavages. So it's almost like one-third of the entire population lives in a different reality. And I kind of, I mean, this is an unbelievably crude depiction, but I see sort of the ideational landscape in, in a lot of um, sort of uh, OECD countries, quote-unquote Western states, to be sort of um, trifurcated. You have one-third that believe A, one-third that believe B, and then one-third that kind of just wait to see what happens between team A and B. But th those, those groups, the size of group A and group B, are really pronounced. And in the past, it was more like there was an insurgent group sort of picking. I mean, again, this might be a, a completely naive way of looking at it, but it seems like there was more a mass that was kind of a little bit, you know, that the, that the, that the group that was just waiting to see what happened seemed to be the predominant group. Then you had the sort of the elite mentality that was guiding that, dot, that sort of mass blob group. And then there was this insurgent group sort of picking and trying to change things. These are the sort of the you know, the progressive sort of ideals, and this sort of seems to be the way that it sort of had moved across the 20th century. Now, though, it seems like the people themselves are far more invested in a picture of reality. And I don't know whether this was always the case, but I suppose the way that we fight now, online, on Twitter, on social media, 
about descriptions of what's happening, you know, through, I mean, it's just it's made so painfully clear during the Trump uh, administration, which is obviously yeah, coming to an end pretty soon. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it'll come yeah. to the end. I'm sure it'll come to the end. Um, uh, one way or the other. Um, is just how different these pictures of reality were, you know, and uh, it was so difficult to talk to so many people about one side or the other. Is it's like, you know, this is what's happening, and then it's like, no, it's not. I mean, and these ideas, these claims about fake news and so on were symptoms of, I guess, the phenomenon or the paradox I'm describing is what is fake news? Fake news is the claim by one side of the paradox that the, the media representation of the other side of the paradox is a lie, is wrong. I mean, that's basically yeah. what it is. So when I talk about a social paradox, a good way to sort of um, understand what that is would be you are aware of a social paradox every time you hear someone make a claim of fake news because that means that there's literally a social paradox taking place and one of the sides is saying that the other side is, you know, is not being um, uh, faithful to what's really going on in quote-unquote reality. So to go back to this sort of situation, I feel like, you know, the ideational terrain, you said, you know, I'm talking about ideas and so on, it feels like it's more pertinent now than ever that we live in this a type of society where a large group believes that reality is this way and another group, an enormous group, believes reality is another way and we have a democracy where both of these groups are in principle empowered to impose their view of reality upon the other side. And I think this is where one real tension comes, you know, comes up uh, and, and this is obviously that problematique is really what my idea of complementarity is meant to try to resolve, is how do we deal with this enormous tension which emerges where there's a clash of these two mutually exclusive pictures of reality, and if we take, you know, Trump's America as an example, 70 million people voted for one person, 70 million plus 80 million it turns out voted for the other person, but 70 million people is a sizable chunk of people who, if the opinion polls are, be, are to be believed, literally don't live in the same reality, the same ideational reality as the other 80 million. Now, that's not something, in my opinion, you can just sweep under the carpet. How do you just pretend that that doesn't matter? These people aren't going away. Their ideas aren't being, um, in some way, ameliorated by what used to be the tool of incorporation before the media because they're watching other media. Mm -hmm. And they t say that the media that's meant to be trying to pacify their inconsistent views is fake news. So this seems troublesome. And, you know, and, and we've seen the kind of the bubbling over of this underlying paradoxical, um, you know, tension between these two incompatible pictures with Brexit and with Trump. And I think that unless there's a way of kind of dealing with it, uh, there will be, you know, see many, many uncertain uh, uncertainties coming forward and un un you know, unexpected consequences. And it seems to me that in the past, the way that this inherent tension that existed in democracy was dealt with was through elite control of media, that you were able to basically send one message, I mean, again, it's a totally crude depiction, but let's just say it's a shorthand. You could, you know, the elite control of mass media could say, here's the view of the world we want you to know. This is what's happening. This is how international relations should be understood. This is how, you know, these are the enemies. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Okay. And that, generally speaking, kept the dissidents, kept the disagreements over world picture at the margin. Now, with the change in technology, internet and social media, I think the elite 
control over a consistent media message has really been relinquished. And so now that group, the dissidents, the non-believers of this kind of mass impression of the world are much larger than they used to be. And they're so large and consequential that they can have a democratic impact. They can push a referendum in a way that you know wasn't expected. They can push an election in a way that wasn't expected. So this, that's the sort of portrait of the social ideational landscape that's the problematique for my um, dissertation. And I believe that complementarity offers a completely uh, unique way of addressing that. And it is, as I said, a pragmatic and you know, a um, compromise resolution. No one wins fully, but it gets you to a place that you just simply don't get to by trying to force the other side to accept the picture of reality that you know has been determined. On that note, I wish you all the best for your dissertation and thank you for being here. Very welcome. Thank you for joining us at Orders Beyond Borders. If you have enjoyed this, check out our blog at ordersbeyondborders.blog.bcb.eu or follow us on Twitter using the handle at obbblog as well as on Facebook. You'll find links and more information in the description to this episode. Also, we would like to hear what you think. If you have any comments or feedback on the series, write to us. You can reach us via email on obb.vcb.eu as well as through our social media channels. This interview was produced by me, Ananya Bordeloy. The team also includes Iram Ebetuk. That's it for today. Until next time.